Hello and welcome to the Retro Football Analysis Podcast. You're joined today by your host, Alistair Bain, and of course, my travelling companion back to 1996 is Mr Stuart Flaherty. Stuart, how you doing, mate? Good evening, Alistair. How are you? I've got good, thanks, mate. It's been an interesting couple of days. Obviously, the start of your 96, all the furor um, leading up to the tournament. Obviously, everything that's happened, I'm sure if you remember back at the time, all the media coverage of the England team of that era. Um, going into these games, Stu, obviously we watch them back now, we've had a chance to analyse them. Um, what are your sort of overall thoughts before we get stuck into the matches? Yeah, I mean, first of all, when you see um, the England build-up, there's something about a trip to a dentist or something, was it? <laughs> nice quiet night out, mate, a couple of bottles of wine, you know. If you... Yeah, but um really enjoyed watching all these games, you know, like a lot of these, a lot of these games I didn't watch at the time. And seeing them in full now, you get an appreciation of uh, just how many good players were at the tournament. Um, Germany were no surprise. They go on to win, and it looked like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, France looked phenomenal. Uh, Desai and Blanc with Bernard Lamar behind them. looked like they might never concede a goal until <laughs> right. the next decade. Um, but yeah, really enjoyed it. So let's go through the groups real quick here. We'll just go through the results again. We won't go too much detail into all of them. We are going to break down a couple of the, the matches today, however. Uh, so let's look Group A, first of all. A um, couple of interesting results here, Stu. Holland and Scotland um, obviously being a big sort of shock result, if you like. Um, what were your thoughts on this, obviously now having watched it back and, and saw how the, the game went? I thought Holland looked fantastic, actually. I thought it was a 3-4-3 diamond. It was very dynamic interchange-wise in centre-mid. Massively dominant in possession. Andy Gorham played really well. Uh, Bergkamp looked good. Um, Yeah, I was really impressed with Holland. And one thing I preferred about football coverage back then is I feel like if this game was played today, um, it would just be dismissed as... Holland should have won. Mm-hmm. Scotland parked the bus. Blah blah blah. But you know, you look at the the performance of Colin Hendry and the performance of Andy Gorham under the pressure that they were put under, mm-hmm. and to come up time and again with stops and clearances and headers, it's not it's not an easy thing. And I think uh, the average fan has lost an appreciation of defending and you know, the other the mental stress that a game like that can put on players and the ability to stand up to it and show backbone is impressive, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, I thought Scotland deserved a point. Were they thoroughly outplayed on the ball? Yes. But when you were that strong defensively, um, you know, you grind out points. It's how the game works. Sure. We'll leave the England match till a bit later and we're going to break that one down. But obviously that would finish a draw. With, uh, with Switzerland so obviously that would really put Group A in the balance going into, going into match two or match day two rather Group B then Stewie we've got Spain-Bulgaria was the first match then obviously France-Romania I think for me this is a, a sort of tale of individuals right I mean the individual performances in each of these teams were uh, obviously Hadji for Romania Stoichkov Bulgaria pr- maybe Jorkaev I'd say probably France then obviously Hierro Spain what did you think of this group overall? Um enjoyed it um it's it's funny right now in uh 2020 watching spain and bulgaria 
and wrapping your heads around the fact that Spain are probably the second best team in the second best nation <laughs> right. at that time. Right. You know, and people would laugh at that, especially younger people, but it's coming off the 94 World Cup when, you know, Stoichkov lit it up mm-hmm. and Lechkov lit it up. And I think, again, here, Stoichkov is one of the best players at the entire tournament and an individual on that level. Spain didn't really have. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, thought, I thought Hierro was good, but I thought he was a ball-winning midfielder who shot from distance a lot. Right. Um, certainly not what you associate with Spain now. Yeah. Um, I personally thought their best player was Jose Luis Caminero. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest with you. Didn't really have, didn't really know who he was before we do this project. <laughs> and go back and watch all these games and then you're embarrassed when you Google him and see what he did in the game. But, you know, he's, he's certainly not remembered like the legends of that time. And for me, he's Spain's best player in this game. Um, up front, it was Peasy and Guerrero. I mean, uh, there, there's not there's not much there, man. <laughs> to be to be quite honest with you, uh, but Fire Stoichkov and Lechkov for Bulgaria were were fantastic. And if Bulgaria had not had a man sent off with a one nil lead and 15 minutes left in the game, sure. then uh, then the tournament might end up different. And <laughs> I think another noteworthy incident, which was almost hilarious to me, was. Uh, Spain equalise on the free kick after um, the Bulgarian defender Hupchev gets sent off. Mm-hmm. So it's 1-1. Spain got the momentum. It's going to be 15 minutes of Spain banging at the door with an extra man. And a Spanish striker, Pizzi, gets himself sent off <laughs> for a reckless tackle by the sideline, 70 yards away from his goal. That has got to drive... <laughs> The Spanish coach is wild. It was just such a, you know, they had all this momentum and it lasted about two minutes. Right. It's almost like uh, the the air came out of the balloon after that, right? Like it just completely yeah. deflated the side. Yeah, and in the um, in the France game, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think Jorge was probably man of the match. Um, so again, it's ni- it's it's fun to watch the games in these time capsules of just this tournament. Mm-hmm. Zinedine Zidane's on the field right? and right now the concept of Zinedine Zidane being on a field and Yuri Jorkaev and Christian Karimba being more effective um, is almost ridiculous but it's exactly what happened if you watch this game and yeah. the French the French back line was phenomenal I mean if you're watching this at the time they're a tournament contender they let in two goals in ten qualifying games and it looks like it sure no absolutely solid um, so going on to Group C then, this is the, the, you know, by law we have to have one of these, the Group of Deaths. Um, obviously the first match being Denmark-Portugal, two real powerhouses for me, Stu. This was a, a, a real conflict in how teams want to play. Denmark were a bit more uh, defensive-minded, they want to play in the counter. Portugal just complete free-flowing movement possession. However, this is a really even game and, and one I enjoy greatly. What do you think about it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Denmark, are. you're right. You know, they're very hard-working. They're very organised. They're very disciplined. Uh, but they were lucky enough to have uh, Brian Laudrup on the team. And, you know, he's, he's, as skill- he's as skillful as any of the Portuguese lads, as good as they were. And mm-hmm. the, uh, the goal was almost an encapsulation of Denmark, right? Because Laudrup picks the ball up and beats two people off the dribble and smashes it in, but the goal didn't happen if Mikkel Beck didn't make a 15-20 yard sprint to close down Vidor Bayer and get a deflection on the clearance and get louder up the goal. So there's, there's to me, the two sides of football that every team's need. Hard work that you know a lot of people would cut the corner on and then the skill. 
Um, Portugal, fantastic. Rui Costa, Luis Figo. I mean, it took me took me 15, 20 minutes to fully understand the formation they were playing. So, sure. Lord knows what it felt like to try and defend against it and cover it. The other game in this group, Stu, for me, was a bit of a letdown. And I'd, I don't know if it was because I was excited to watch Croatia back and was expecting fireworks. Is this team just a solid, hard-working team with some good individuals? Or have we maybe just saw a poor performance from them in this game, do you think? Yeah, I felt the same, actually. But, I mean, if you look at the qualifying campaign, no. They were smashing goals in. Davosuka was on fire. Uh, Asanovic, Prozaneki, Boban, these are all big players. Um, mm-hmm. There's probably some pressure and some tension comes with the fact that it was their first ever tournament game as a nation. Mm-hmm. and it showed through but with that said I mean they, they never looked like they were going to lose to me it took them a long time to get the goal and the goal was somewhat a direct counter-attack and they win 1-0 but uh, I never watching it felt that they were second best but they certainly weren't as spectacular as the the pre-game the pre-tournament uh, articles mm-hmm. um, would have you believe so last group then we go to group D uh Germany, Czech Republic and Italy, Russia. I know we're going to touch on the Germany game in a bit more detail, but let's start off with Italy, Russia then, Stu. What were your, your thoughts on that one? Yeah, it was 2-1 Italy and, I mean, Italy looked fantastic. <laughs> they really did. The one the one letdown was maybe Del Piero, mm-hmm. who was coming into the tournament as a FIFA Young World Player of the Year. And he played wide in a 4-4-2 and got subbed off at half-time and Frankly, they were a bit better without him. And Roberto Donadoni is an MLS player by then, and he's stepped on and outperformed him. But they were very rigid, 4-4-2. They were a lot more high-pressed than people associate. It certainly wasn't the old sit-back and counter. You know, the, the, the wingers were getting right up in the face of the uh, fullbacks on the opponent, and the Italian fullbacks were getting right up there behind them and trusting the centre-back behind them to, to cover. So they were they were very very aggressive, and very very fast and athletic when they were countering and running in behind. And you know, like Casiraghi, like I, I grew up watching Premier League, and Ravanelli tore it up, mm-hmm. and Zola tore it up, and Casiraghi not so much mm-hmm. uh, when he was at Chelsea. But watching this game, he's just on a different plane yeah. to, to Zola and Rav, and it's a it's a much higher one to be honest with you. He looked phenomenal. So this Russian side then, Stu, this is again a team that completely breezed through qualifying, again scored the most goals, uh, I think accumulated the most points as well. You've done a thread about this on the retrofootballanalysis.com and one of the interesting pieces I I saw in it was the sort of tussle between Kinchelskis and Maldini. Are you maybe a bit disappointed some more didn't come from that, that we didn't see more... Um, crosses from Kinchelskis are even more just sort of attacks into the box from that area do you think they, they didn't take advantage uh, of it enough no it's Maldini <laughs> no right. like yeah. I, I think very very few fullbacks could have done that when isolated so many times 1v1 but I think um, I think Kinchelskis is a star player and he did great in the EPL mm-hmm. but he's he's come across one of the great defenders of all time right. and, uh, and it looked like it and it, it's great to watch you know, two players like that go head-to-head. So let's start off then, Stu, going into the two matches that we've both picked to to break down. We're going to cover 
a couple different things in this. Obviously, folks, you can find all of the match reports and data analysis over at retrofootballanalysis.com. You can also go to our Twitter handle, which is at Analysis Retro, and you'll see uh, a thread for pretty much every game there, and you'll see some clips, some goals, and, and some more information on it. So the first one we're going we're gonna to touch on here is the, the England-Switzerland game. Couple of points I wanted to start off the show on this one, and I think a good place to start would be England's formation. Um, as a, a sort of, you know, looking at this from the beginning on paper, it's a four-four-two. You've got Anderton and McManaman, obviously, as the wingers. It morphs slightly in this game, um, and I know we'd sort of alluded to this in the preview, speaking about the Venables Christmas tree and whatnot. What was your uh, what was your take on this particular game, though? In terms of, I was setup? surprised. I mean, it, it is a four four two setup. And my memory, and again, I'm 18 years old when I'm remembering this, was the Christmas tree. It's all everyone ever talked about, mm-hmm. right? But um, this was four four two. There was definitely emphasis on getting the ball out wide to Anderton McManaman. It was almost very typically English. Mm-hmm. And defensively, it wasn't very good. To be honest with you, there was big gaps between. Uh, between the English midfield and the English backline, and they were very easily counted on. You know, Gascoigne definitely was England's best player for me and drove forward with the ball great. But then there's another side to that, that one time, 19-year-old Johan Vogel on Switzerland dribbles past Gascoigne on the halfway line because Gascoigne's not your greatest defender. Mm-hmm. And because of the setup of England, they then a 25-30 yard dribble untouched into the penalty area. And Tony Adams tackles him, he goes down and we're up and it's not a penalty. I mean, that's it's not good enough, right? right. You're not gonna you're not gonna get anywhere in tournaments being that vulnerable. And that it wasn't a one off, you know, it's especially in the latter stages of the game, Vogel was coming forward from from midfield in the last fifteen, twenty minutes, untracked and on the dribble and giving England fits. He's actually, you know, long forgotten. Everyone talks about Siemens penalty save from Euro 96 but there's a save here in injury time mm-hmm. from Grassi um, that saves England getting beaten the opener sure. and, and again you talk about turning points yeah. what does a tournament look like if England go in there and lose 2-1 at home to Switzerland in the first game so indulge me for a minute Stu here was my sort of take on the game and certainly what I've heard on podcasts through the years or in interviews through the years was England started poorly Um and then got themselves a point, right? Here's how I saw the game. I thought for the first 30 minutes, the amount of chances England created inside the box, attacks from corner kicks, from regular play, looked fantastic. I think, like you mentioned there, defensive transition, absolutely oceans of space, and Southgate and Adams are having to step out the back line, and it looks vulnerable. However, for that first half, I think if they were able to replicate even half of that, I I personally think they win that game. It's the fact that in the second half, it was almost like anything they did well in the first half, they just stopped doing it, you know, and, and I felt that they, were, they were far too narrow, they, they weren't able to find the same movements from Gascoigne and behind the midfield as they were in the first half, and for me, I think they did get spooked defensively, and it was almost like they focused too much on that and, and forgot that they had to try and score a second. Do you think that's fair, or, or what's your own thoughts? Yeah, well... What you've just said there may have showed itself in the subs uh, because, as I said, Gascoigne gets blown by by Vogel big time Mm -hmm. and it it nearly cost England a goal. And maybe that is more in Venable's head 
than Gascoigne going forward and creating chance after chance. I mean, there's one chance where Gascoigne runs forward 40 yards and bounces passes off three different teammates and wins a corner. So mm -hmm. Gascoigne on the ball is going to win you the game, but Gascoigne defensively is going to lose you the game. And 15 minutes left or around about somewhere, 15 to 20 minutes left, he brings off Gascoigne and puts David Platt on. And, you know, I don't think anyone's arguing that David Platt was more likely to win that game than Paul Gascoigne. Mm -hmm. But he had the second most caps in the squad. You know, he was a veteran. He was probably a bit better defensively than Gaza. So has Venables, I'm not going to read his mind and pretend I know, but it's worth asking, has he made a sub designed to not lose the game mm -hmm. on the counter more than it was designed to win it? Sure. I think that's fair. And if you look at England's strength in this particular match, right? It is the individuals, it is the McManamans, it is the Andertons, the Gascoins, even to a certain extent Sheringham and Shearer as individuals. Their quality, right, as footballers is better than what they come up against. However, the Swiss, I think their major strength was just in unity. You know, they press as a group, they shifted as a midfield. I thought the strikers worked extremely hard together. The support that you mentioned from Vogel, I thought was excellent. His ability to get him down the field was, was second to none. So, is there an element here of Switzerland deserved the point and maybe we're, you know, looking at this Switzerland, as England fans? Switzerland definitely right. deserved the point. Like, I, I just said the same. I just told you Scotland deserved the point and they got played off the park in yeah. large uh Switzerland did not get played off the park. Mm -hmm. England had more ball, but when Switzerland did have the ball, they were a constant threat. Mm -hmm. You know, like Gaza was brilliant. And I said he was England's best player. But if you if you read the match report, he wasn't awarded man of the match. That was Turkey Omaz, the Turkish striker, mm -hmm. who was early doors shrugged off Adams and it's took Neville to come in and slow him down with his body before Southgate comes over and clears the ball. So it just took three England players to stop a ball in behind mm -hmm. to one man. And, and Turkey Omaz was stretching and threatening England again and again and again. I mean, how he looked on this day to go Google his career and see what he did after, you're almost disappointed because he looks unplayable. I mean, there's great defenders there. Stewie Pearce, there, Gareth Southgate, Tony Adams, they're, they're having nightmares with him. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Neville did the best job at the back four, but, you know, there's, there's a Turkish strike, sorry, a, a Swiss striker there just, just running wild. So you can't just say, oh, they were they were lucky to get a draw. There was certainly a feeling of inevitability when they do get the penalty after knocking at the door for the equaliser again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So if you're the coach then, Stu, you're, you've watched this first match, is there anything you would change personnel looking at the bench? Is there anything shape-wise you'd change going into the Scotland shape -wise, match? Shape-wise, absolutely, but you've got to be careful with this, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. You know, we live in an era now where you know, I'm coaching American D1 college and everyone understands the four lines as opposed to the three lines that a 4-2-3-1 offers as opposed to a 4-4-2. In 1996, that wasn't common thinking in the game. In fact, Venable's Christmas tree was uh, somewhat revolutionary at the time. I would argue it wouldn't be anything like noteworthy if a coach did it now. Mm -hmm. um, so England's biggest problem for me was almost definitely the gaps between the back four and the midfield four to the point that they were never going to go anywhere until they fixed that. So if you could change that to a 4-2-3-1, mm -hmm. they'd, they'd be a lot, lot stronger. 
you know, and you, you would even free Gascoigne up more, right? If you have two midfielders doing the defensive work that Gascoigne and Ince are doing here, mm-hmm. um, that, that almost allows Gascoigne to roam free. It takes some defensive pressure off. It takes away the issue of him getting beat off the dribble and someone carrying the ball 30 yards unopposed. Um, so I would have made that change, but I'm doing that with two decades worth of <laughs> advancement in coaching and understanding of formations and, you know, the impacts of that. I don't, I don't know if, uh, at nine, you know, at 18 years old, I didn't have a clue. I probably thought he should have say, subbed on Fowler, Ferdinand and left Shearer <laughs> and Barbie on and just played them all at the same time. Um, but, um, I, I did find it interesting and I do think he was right. And again, very ahead of the time that instead of, putting Fowler or Ferdinand on the field. And you got to imagine that these boys had combined for 65 goals yeah. that year. Mm-hmm. And he played Teddy Sheringham instead. And I imagine Sheringham's 30 years old. He's only got 15 caps. This is not a guy that was big time. Mm-hmm. But I think Venable saw the ability of Sheringham to link midfield and attack and to feed Shearer as his lone front runner. And it was almost as if, Shearer and Fowler and Ferdinand, there was never going to be a front two of them. They were all competing for the high striker spot. And then Sheringham is the other striker. And you're probably more likely to see Gascoigne fill that role than ever see Fowler or Ferdinand do it. And I think that showed with the sub. uh, Because it's strange to see a Middlesbrough player subbed on, right? Nicky Barmby. For Sheringham, again, with 65 Premier League goals sat there. But I do see what he's thinking is. He's thinking that Barnby can get on the ball more and feed Shearer more ball rather than have two fruit, two front runners and have to go more direct mm-hmm. to get some kind of quality service on. So I think, I think they were interesting. So Steve Stone is an interesting sub. <laughs> he wants he wants a winger. So I, I, I get why he used Stone, but it's it's somewhat surprising to see McManaman and Sheringham walk off the field and Barnby and Stone come on. Mm-hmm. Level-wise, it's... It's a downgrade, sure. but when you when you think through the eyes of the roles he wanted these guys to play, and what those players could do, it does make some sense. And it's it's direct. It's actually very clever that part of how he goes about things. I just think there was issues on the defensive end, and he obviously sees them because mm-hmm. the maybe what we're talking about here is why the Christmas tree came to effect that he knew he needed those extra layers mm-hmm. in defence. Okay, well let's move on then. The next game, Stu, we're going to talk about is the. Germany Czech Republic game, uh, which you know, if we fast forward to what's going to happen later on in this tournament, uh, this would almost seem unbelievable that this would be a final, <laughs> given the disparity yeah. in the two teams. Um, yeah, let's talk about the German team first. Then, give us a quick synopsis and your thoughts of the formation, individuals within it, and really what it looked like uh, you know getting to watch it back well, you, you want to know what I think now or what I thought when I was 18 well let's go let's go with now and could, uh, <laughs> contrast good because now they're awesome right it is a joy to watch and there is so many things they're doing that coaches in the last 5 to 10 years are getting crediting with inventing when just like most tactical things it's recycling you know like Chris Wilder's had a lot of praise, and rightly so, but we're starting to talk like Chris Wilder's the first guy to think about getting centre-backs involved in the attack. Sure. Whereas Germany here are playing 3-5-2, and every single time, 
you know, your boys on the outside. I know Helmer was on the right side. Simon was in the middle. Every time those wide centre-backs get the ball under no pressure, they're striding forward. Right. And they're either going forward and being an extra man or they're dragging a Czech midfielder out and they're playing into their three-man midfield. Because they've got a three-man midfield in a 3-5-2, you've got the full-backs stretching the field. Uh, Christian Zieger, future middle player being one of them, I thought he was fantastic. Mm-hmm. They're stretching the field out wide, and then the checks are caught 3v3, man-for-man marking. So then when Sammer just strolls up, which he does all the time, and this is one of the best players in the world at the time, it's 4v3 and he's going unaccounted for. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the best German midfielders is Sammer, and Sammer's a defender. But they just created such numerical mismatches by having a back three Sending a defender into the attack effectively leading a back two because your wing backs were high. Mm-hmm. It was it was impressive to watch and it was uh, you numerically can't be defended without just committing all your players back behind the ball, right? Sure. Tom 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 Hassler, great player. Uh, Andreas Muller, great player. He's obviously shown themselves already to be two of the best guys at the entire tournament and they don't have the magic of Gascoigne mm-hmm. and they don't have the magic of Rui Costa but they're just as effective you know they're quick they make quick decisions they execute they make relentless runs forward they're very fit to join the attack and uh, yeah Germany is something you know like you've got all this attacking firepower on the team you've got Klinsmann on the bench and their left wing back opens the score and that's got to be somewhat disheartening to play against <laughs> right well, I think this is the, the contrast almost to what we said there about England and that I wouldn't say it was experimental from Venables because he'd been, he'd been with them obviously for a long time, but it was experimental in the sense that, that the the normal formation for an English player at the time would have been a 4-4-2, right? This is very yeah. much, however, the German style. You know, this 3-5-2 is what they've been doing for a number of decades obviously they've been very successful in the 80s playing it it's almost plug and play now right it's bring out this player yeah. bring in the next one Matthias who wouldn't be at this tournament has obviously done the Sammer role for a long time um, you've got uh, obviously the two forwards there which for a long time was Voller and Klinsman but again these two younger strikers in, in Kuntz and Bobic are obviously doing a similar role I think for me Stu one of the most impressive parts of this was they could play possession, they could play on the counter, they could cross the ball, they were good at set pieces. I really don't see a weakness in this team. I mean, did you did you notice any? Nope. nope. And, you know, like what... It's impressive enough watching this through the eyes of the Czechs with a 16th ranked team and caught in the bookmakers odds going in. Mm-hmm. Germany was still good enough that even if they were playing the worst team at the tournament, you're still impressed. Right. To, to do that... And to know now that the Czechs went on to be the second best team in the tournament <laughs> is unbelievable sure. because they, they battered them. You know, you've got Nedved on the field. You've got um, Patrick Berger did well. You've got Paborski on the field. And these guys are just being rendered completely ineffective under a barrage most of the game. So before we go on to the Czechs, then, let's finish with Germany with the inevitable inclusion of Klinsmann moving forward. He's going to get back in the team, right? He's the captain, he's the talisman, he's rattled in goals in qualifying. Is it almost a bit unfair, <laughs> given how well the two strikers played in this game? I mean, not really. And the first goal came from the left wing back, Ziga. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second goal came from the centre mid, Moller. Um, you know, like Bobic did assist one of the goals, but I wouldn't say 
given how dominant Germany were in the game, I wouldn't say their performance rendered them unbenchable. Right. So Czech Republic then, Stu, this is uh, as a shape somewhat similar, but I think, to be honest with you, it was a, predicated a lot on how they wanted to defend, right? Which is man for man and certainly centrally wanted to, to try and make sure there weren't many gaps. Obviously, the one major gap would be that, that summer position like you mentioned. Is there any players that you you weren't aware of watching this game? You thought, oh, this, this guy played fantastically. And, and similarly, the guys you did know going into it, did they impress you like they perhaps thought you would? Um, it's not that I knew them, but given that he was the starting centre-back, um, maybe even the captain for the game, I thought uh, Cadillac was poor. Mm-hmm. He got ran across the front up for both the goals. I thought the goalkeeper was poor. He got beat for both the goals in the bottom corner, the same corner, and those goals aren't glancing the post and going in. Um, as far as who played well, I thought Suja Parik was very, very good. Um, the centre-back from Slavia Prague, he was probably the most impressive player on the day. And to play well on a, the defence of the team, pretty much getting panned right. that day. Um, yeah, that, that, that was impressive. What about the uh, the strikers? Obviously, we've saw Paborski here start in more of a central position with, with Kuka. I know, obviously, later on in the tournament, he'd move out to a wide position. What did you think of Paborski overall? Uh, they subbed him off at half-time, and I was surprised because I thought, um, not because of anything he did on the ball, but who did something on the ball for them in the first half. But, you know, there's a number of clips on the Twitter of his defensive ethic, and he's making runs back 20, 30 yards from striker and turning the ball over. He's intercepting a pass at one point to try and launch a counter. He was actually creating things through his defensive work um, off the ball, and he was somewhat starved of service on the ball. So, And, you know, I'm not going to use hindsight. After this game, I, I thought nothing of Kuka. Um, he does play better as the tournament goes on, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's put a bow on match day, or match round one rather. Um, we'll give our team performance and individual performances. I know we've touched on a lot of these, but let's sort of recap it. So what would your uh, best team performance of the round be, Stu? Germany. Uh, I'm going to give an honourable mention to France mm-hmm. um, because their, their movement was good. They had some good players and defensively they looked phenomenal um, but I'm going to go with Germany they were probably the most impressive to watch and it's made even more impressive by what the Czechs went on to do after this game my team performance was Portugal and a couple of reasons for this one I remember watching Scotland play against Portugal in the qualifying for World Cup 94 and got absolutely panned I think it was 5-0 in Lisbon however I've not <laughs> However, however, I have no memory of how they played, the way they played or anything. So coming into this, I, I knew they had a good side. As we mentioned before, this was a, a number of players had came through together in the, the national team system. At the Youth National World uh, sorry, the Youth World Cup final, sorry, in, in ninety one that they'd won. Um and for me, Stu, I was just like you mentioned. I was, was mesmerised by this, trying to figure out is this a is this a four three three? I think inevitably we settled on it being a four four two, but I think uh, diamond shape rather. But even within that, it was very fluid. 
Um, and I think what coupled with this was he just looked so comfortable in the ball. You had fullbacks flying forward. You had midfielders that were moving the ball at pace. It didn't seem laboured. It didn't seem like a possession-based team that were hanging on to the ball unnecessarily. I mean, they really got after uh, Denmark in, in a lot of phases. And I think, to be honest with you, the one area I would be critical is just in front of goal. I just think they didn't they didn't have enough uh, quality and weren't clinical enough. But certainly, I thought this was a team that really set their stall out. Is okay. This is this is a contender here. Yeah. No, they did. They did look the business. That's for sure. I mean, there's a there's a classic argument I'd heard again and again, and I don't disagree with it after after watching that. If they, you know, if Alan Shearer was playing up front for Portugal in this tournament, they would have been a real real threat because they uh, the midfield was phenomenal mm-hmm. so looking ahead to round two of matches Stewie obviously the major game in this next round is, is the Scotland England one uh, which I'm sure we'll discuss at length in the next show um, the other big ones for me here are France Spain which I guess at the time probably wasn't the game it is now but you know it's always too um, you know, cultured teams obviously they played against each other a lot in the 80s some famous games the other one as well that sticks out for me here is probably Croatia-Denmark um, yeah. is there anything in, in round two sure, any teams rather you're looking at in round two saying okay this team need a performance or you're, you're looking forward um, to watching I'm looking at the England-Scotland game and narrative wise they're all on a fresh start right every, every team in the group drew they're all on one point mm-hmm. so you're almost starting the tournament again you're not under that much pressure mm-hmm. um the czechs are under pressure and at the time i would imagine there was no conversation other than the fact that the czechs were on the way to elimination because mm-hmm. they're going into a game as big underdogs against italy who look fantastic in their opener and if they lose this game they're out so you know in, in hindsight czechs v italy was was a massive game uh, France v Spain, that group's wide open. You know, Romania have got zero points, but they, you know, Hadji was another one who starred at the last World Cup, so Romania is a force at that point. Um, and they're still in the group. France have won their game, so they got the advantage. Spain and Bulgaria got a point each, so that's that second round of games was going to really, you know, shape the landscape of that group in particular. And yeah, Croatia, Denmark, I think Croatia will. They won their first game and they'll get a mulligan, but you're talking about a team that came in with people talking about how they might win it because of how fantastic they were in qualifying against the team that actually did win it. The last time there was a Euros, um, we got a point against Portugal, so that was a big game. So I think that's where we'll leave it this week then, Stu. Ahead of next week, we've got a fun announcement. Uh, We've got a special guest to our uh, next podcast. It'll be with you all hopefully next Wednesday. Uh, a player who played at year 96 so we'll keep that under wraps until obviously the time of announcing so yeah all that leaves for me to do is say thank you all for listening and of course thank you to Mr Stuart Flaherty thank you Wally and until next time I'll speak to you all soon